uh, each summer for the past several, we have stopped to look at the book of Psalms. Our theme this summer has been praying through the Psalms. We believe that in the Psalms, God gives us a model, that he gives us language to use in approaching him in prayer. He speaks to us in all of his word, but in the Psalms, he shows us how to speak back to God as his trusting children. And so this morning, we're going to be in a well-known psalm for many of us, uh, Psalm 23. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? The scripture reading today is Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and given to us, his people, in love. Amen. You can be seated. One of what I think is the most beautiful and amazing traditions in all of sports, if you've ever watched a Liverpool soccer match, <laughs> so we've got a Manchester fan who just read the scriptures for us. But if you ever watch a Liverpool soccer match, tens of thousands of people who gather, uh, rowdy English soccer fans, who gather to watch their team play, stop, and they all together join in singing a song from a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. It's kind, of, it's kind of bizarre, but it's beautiful. The words of this song, are, are I'll read them for us. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your hearts and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. It's beautiful to hear so many people singing this, even more beautiful than a storied tradition like Jackson DeVille uh, on the zip line from the goalpost. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. Well, why? Why would a group of rowdy soccer fans be grabbed by this one song? What's the power in this song? You know, the, the tradition is they started singing it uh, because it was covered in the 1960s by a band named Jerry and the Pacemakers who were from Liverpool. But originally the song comes in the musical Carousel where Julie, the main character, her husband, Billy, has committed suicide, and her friend consoles her with this song that you'll never walk alone. Then at the end of the story, uh, Billy, uh, the deceased husband, sings the song uh, to his daughter, 
to assure her that he'll always be with her, that his presence will be with her as she goes. I think the, so the song is actually far better known and far more enduring culturally than the musical itself. And I think it's called on so much because it speaks to one of our core fears as human beings, that ultimately, in this life, we walk through it alone. Yes, we may have companions for a time along the way, but in the difficult stuff of life, ultimately, we walk alone. It's our deepest fear, uh, one of them, and we long to believe that we won't ultimately walk through this life alone. Some of you know this fear. You know what it is uh, to fear rejection in your relationships, to fear abandonment, to enter into every new relationship with this lingering fear of what's going to happen when these people really get to know me. Surely they're going to abandon me. Surely they too are going to leave me. Others of you know uh, the loneliness of living through broken relationships, feeling left behind feeling undesired. You know that loneliness of fearing that you walk alone. Others of you may worry uh, as you approach illness and older age about the prospect of your life ending alone. And then for others of us, we know what it is to wonder on a spiritual sense, in a cosmic sense, if we're alone, right? If there is a God and if there's a God there, is he somebody that I can know? Is it a God that really wants to walk with me in this life, or is he just out there and distant, disconnected from the stuff of my life? You know, I think we all fear uh, that the lyrics of a song like that, you'll never walk alone, in the end is just kind of wishful thinking, right? That it's a pleasant thought that we'll never be alone. But in the end, we know the way the real wor world works, right? We know that relationships do break down. We know that when, when your dad dies, he's gone. He's not there singing back to you, that you'll never walk alone. You feel his absence. And so it can seem uh, empty. And yet we, call, we come to Psalm 23, uh, probably the most well-known song in the Bible. If you know uh, any of the Bible's poetry, it's likely this song, this psalm. You've heard it read at funerals. You've heard it read at the bedside of, of the ill. You've heard it read in moments where we look for strength. And I believe it's such an enduring song because it is an answer. It's perhaps the Bible's most profound answer, perhaps all of human literature's most profound answer, to this question of do we walk alone? Through this life, does, does aloneness have the last word? Or is there a God who walks with us? And David uh, employs some beautiful metaphors to paint this rich picture that at the end of the day, abandonment and loneliness doesn't have the last word. That you don't walk alone. That God is with you like a shepherd is with his sheep. That God provides for you like a host at a dinner party. And that ultimately communion with God is the most real thing about you and about this world. And that his goodness will follow you all the days of this life and beyond. So we're going to look at Psalm 23 and just walk through it, walk through this, this rich world of poetic images that David weaves together to comfort us and to answer in a solid and real way, a way that's beyond wishful thinking, that we do not walk alone through this world. Well, the first metaphor that David uses here is that God is a shepherd and we are his sheep. 
begins, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, the Bible is full of rich metaphors for God. In fact, at one level, you could say that all of our language towards God is metaphorical, right? God is the exalted and perfect, entirely beyond in so many ways. Our best human words are like the attempt to finger paint a picture of what he's like. But the Bible uses these images to give us a real and true picture of what God is like. And one of the most enduring ones is this one, that God is like a shepherd. And in relation to him, we are like his sheep. This is a picture uh, that conveys to us the goodness of God's care for us and our trust and submission to him, trusting him with our lives and our livelihood, that he is a good shepherd. You know, there's a fascinating little book written uh, going on 30 years ago by a man named Philip Keller. He was a shepherd living in Eastern Africa. He wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And what he does is, a, he was really rancher is probably a better description of him. He owned property and owned a large flock. And he writes of, as a man who knew what it was like to take care of sheep. And one of the most vivid stories uh, in his book is a story about one of his neighbors who was a tenant farmer. He rented the land and he too kept sheep. And he said that every day without fail, this man's sheep would come right to the fence line and start putting their nose through his fence, trying to get through to his, his ranch. And he said as he got to know his neighbor, he said he was the worst shepherd he had ever met. He didn't take care of his sheep. Their land was grazed down to dust, and he didn't replant and, and give them good grass. There wasn't clean and fresh water running through his land, and he never tended to it, so they were uh, left to parasites and things that might afflict their health. He didn't protect them from predators, and so regularly wild dogs would come and prey on his sheep. And so these sheep recognized that their life under this shepherd was not good. And so every day they would come to this, this shepherd's fence and try to get in to be with a good shepherd. And that gives us something of what David is telling us here, is that we have a good shepherd. We have a shepherd that we can trust, a shepherd who looks after the needs of his sheep. He doesn't leave us to our own devices. He doesn't leave us to look out for ourselves, but he takes care of us. He's a good and loving shepherd. The other part of this metaphor is a metaphor of trust, that the sheep submits and trusts the shepherd to take care of it. You know, on one level, this metaphor of shepherd to sheep is a little bit insulting to us, right? Sheep, uh, the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd is not a peer-based relationship, right? Shepherd and sheep don't talk about what they're going to do that day. Uh, the sheep don't come to the shepherd and say, actually, I'd like to go over here and graze, then I'd like to take a nap, and then I think I'll come and have a drink. It's a relationship. It's not a peer relationship. The shepherd is smarter than the sheep. The shepherd is stronger then the sheep, he's wiser. The shepherd has a perspective over the whole of the landscape that the sheep don't share. And so ultimately, our, our commitment to being self-reliant, to being smart, to being capable, takes a pretty severe blow when we're called sheep of a shepherd, when we're called to a posture of submission and trust, to follow after another, believing that he knows what's best for us and takes care of us. And yet what David learns is that the Lord is a shepherd, and I shall not want. 
that the way that God leads, the way that God shepherds him, is such that he wants for nothing. He doesn't have any needs that go unmet. That God's ways are good and life-giving for him. He goes on to tell us, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That the way that God leads us, the way that God directs us, is in the way of righteousness. It's in the way of his commands. It's in the way of his word. You know, I think one of the things that I go through a lot as a pastor is talking with you all about God's direction in our lives. Right? We all want to know, right, where is God leading me? If I'm, if, I'm, if I'm trying to choose between two jobs, how do I know? I'm trying to choose about where I'm going to go uh, in my next steps in life. I'm trying to decide about God's will for my family or my relationships. How do I know how God leads me? And what I find is that a lot of us uh, have views of God's leading that probably have more to do with superstition than the God of the Bible. Uh, it's closer to what we look for maybe a psychic to give us. Well, I look at, look at your future. I look what's in the stars for you, and I think you should do this. You shouldn't do this. Don't go to this restaurant. Don't date this person. When in reality, the way that the Bible shows us that God leads us, that he leads us in the paths of righteousness. But what are the paths of righteousness? Well, he lays it out for us in this book. Right? You can sum it up, as Jesus does, with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That God's ways, God's way of leading us is leading us towards, towards love, towards love for him and love for our neighbor. Meaning we should, in all of the decisions we make, we should ask those questions. Does this enable me to love God and to love my neighbor? Is this the kind of decision that I would make if I wasn't just looking out for my own, but looking out for the good of my neighbor and the glory of God? And you say, well, I'd like more specifics. God said, okay, you don't like two, I'll give you ten. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, it means don't have any other gods, don't make idols, worship the Sabbath, don't take, worship on the Sabbath, don't take his name in vain. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Don't commit adultery, don't murder. We've been through this. Right? So he, he gives us commands, he gives us his paths, and then he calls us to walk in them. Jesus takes that path and he he helps us see the way it applies to our hearts, right? It's your love for your neighbor is more than just not committing adultery or murder. It's also don't, don't harbor lust. Don't walk around with anger in your heart. But within these paths that God gives us, he says, walk. Walk in freedom knowing that you have a shepherd that's good. Knowing that I've taken care of you and given you boundaries to walk in them. So we have a good shepherd you know, the images that, Jesus paint, or that uh, David paints here, it's fascinating. It starts in the first three verses. And the scene is really of a shepherd and his sheep in the pastures of northern Israel, where, where, where the pastures were plentiful and abundant. This is an everyday day in the life of an Israelite shepherd and his sheep. And so he takes it and says, God is with you as a shepherd in the everyday, normal stuff of your life. But then in verses 4 and 5, it takes another turn. The metaphor is the same, but the setting changes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Some commentators say that the setting is now of a shepherd leading his sheep through the ravines and valleys of the wilderness of central Israel, that he's moving his flock, 
And as he moves the flock, they go down into a ravine. They go down to a place where, uh, where their lives are threatened, where the sun is hot, where there's no food and no water available. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. These verses, I think, are the reason why this psalm has become such a key part of the songs that we sing and the, the, the things that we remind ourselves of in illness and at funerals. It's this commitment that even in life's darkest valley, the shepherd is still good and loving and kind. It's the truth that when, when you go through a valley, it doesn't matter how dark the valley is if you know that your shepherd is good. Right? When you can't see what's ahead of you, when you don't know if you're going to make it, if you don't know what threats there are, the one thing that you do know and that you can know is that your shepherd is good. That the same shepherd that took care of you and fed you, providing even uh, for us when we wandered off, still looks out for us in the valleys of life. Because that's where ultimately a shepherd is proven, right? Where his care for us, where his care for his flock is proven. You know, living within this, this metaphor, this picture, I think is really the ultimate rub of faith that human beings have struggled with from Adam and Eve in a garden all the way to us today. David confessed that there's a good shepherd and that when I walk in his ways and I keep to his paths, I don't want, he takes care of me, that God can be trusted to care for us. That's what, the, that's what Adam and Eve were tested on in the garden. It wasn't about fruit. It was about trusting the heart of God. It was about, do you believe that God's boundaries in your life are there for your good? Do you believe that he wants what's best for you? Do you believe that you can trust him? Do you trust him that he'll provide for you? And Adam and Eve, uh, as we know the story, didn't. They broke trust. They were unable to trust. And the scriptures tell us that each of us continue to. That like one of the metaphors it uses, that, that like sheep, we go astray. Like sheep who can't trust their shepherd, we wander off to other pastures, seeking a better life elsewhere. It's one of the metaphors that Jesus uses to describe his calling, right? He says that, that it's like a man who had a hundred sheep, and when one walked off, a good shepherd walked off after the sheep that wandered to bring him back into the fold. That that's our story. That's Jesus, the good shepherd, coming after us in our wandering to bring us back uh, into the Father's fold. So that's one metaphor uh, that he gives us here. Then the second one is that God is like a host that welcomes us. He's like a host with his guests. That's the shift that happens in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So this is an image uh, that's maybe a little less familiar with us, uh, for us. You know, images of Jesus as a shepherd with a lamb. You know, those adorn Sunday school classrooms around the world, right? We're used to thinking of God as a shepherd, Jesus as his shepherd. But you don't see as many pictures of God throwing a party, of Jesus at the head of a table serving a good meal, pouring good wine, serving a, a great party for his guests. This image of God as host is probably more neglected. It's probably harder for us to identify with. We know that Jesus adopted the metaphor of a shepherd with his sheep over and over again in his, in his teaching. We've mentioned a couple of them. But this other metaphor of God as a host, 
I would actually argue is more central to Jesus' teaching in his life than the shepherd image. It's the reason why throughout his, throughout his whole ministry, Jesus made a point to, to eat, to throw parties, to eat with those who the rest of society kicked out and didn't dare to break bread with. That Jesus hosted meals. Jesus hosted events. Even here, it says, in the presence of his enemies. You think of the parties that Jesus threw with the tax collectors and the, Pharise- and, and the, uh, the sinners, while the Pharisees and the teachers of the law stood outside judging, condemning him for who he ate with. That he knew what it was to throw a party, to extend grace and welcome to those who knew exclusion in the presence of their enemies. It's a key part of, of who he understood himself to be was that he was the one who brought this feast and invited God's people into. So the setting shifts again from the pastures through the valley, and we think now that this is now in Jerusalem. This is a picture of God hosting his people in his temple. And what is this? You know, we said that the shepherd metaphor shows us something about God's trustworthiness and something about our need to submit and trust him. What does the image of the the host and his guests show us? I think it shows us, above all else, it's an image of joyful communion. It's an an image of God inviting his people into joyful communion with him, into real life-giving relationship with him. That's what these images are of, of a meal, and then you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. The oil is a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of, uh, this is olive oil uh, that was a rare commodity, a precious thing. that would be poured out on God's anointed, whether it were priests or kings. We see people in the Gospels anointing Jesus with oil as the anointed one, as the Messiah. So it's a sign of God's blessing. And then your cup, your, your cup of blessing is overflowing. And so it's a sign of God's blessing to us, the joy that he gives us in communion with him. Really, the whole Bible is the story of God restoring his wayward children into joyful communion with him, to joyful relationship. J.I. Packer, uh, the great theologian, puts it this way. Communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. Communion with God is the definition of Christianity. It's the center of our faith, is that we can have communion with God in their taste life. This is the reason uh, why every week at the climax of our service, we have communion together. We share a meal. This meal, this table, is a sign of the larger reality that we are made for communion with God that it's the center of our life, the center of our faith, and that it's our ultimate destiny, right? What makes heaven heaven is communion with God. It's not floating on clouds. It's God. It's finally knowing by sight, not just by faith, communion with God. Real, lasting communion with God is the climax of creation. Therefore, it's the climax of our service. This sermon isn't the climax of our service. God knows. Right? The word is crucially important. But that, on that day, when we reach the, the climax of creation, there are going to be no more sermons. <laughs> right? You're not going to need me to tell you what God's like. 
The scriptures tell us that all of us will know God face to face. Some of you are feeling an immense amount of relief in knowing that there are no sermons when we get there. I don't know what I'm going to do for a living in the new heavens and new earth. I guess I'll enjoy my family and hang out, worship God. Right? There, there will be no, need, no more need for preachers because all of us will be caught up into deep and lasting communion with God. It's what we are made for and it's where we're headed. And so, David's great comfort, what David knew in the midst of life's deepest question, do I walk alone? Whether through the pleasant pasture lands of this life or through the valley of the shadow of death, do I walk alone? No. You walk with a shepherd who loves you and you walk with a God who longs to gather you into communion with himself. Now the reality is, it doesn't always feel that way, does it? In our journeys through this life, sometimes we feel very alone. Sometimes we feel alone, cut off from relationships with others. We even feel alone. When we, when we go to pray, it doesn't seem like there's any real communion there. It doesn't seem like God's answering us. Sometimes we come to this table and it doesn't feel very much like a feast. It just tastes like bread and, and wine or grape juice. It's, it's not enough to fill us. It doesn't always in this life feel like God is near to us. What then? What about when there's no sign of our shepherd? Well, the great comfort that we have, the reason that this isn't just a wishful thinking kind of song, like you'll never walk alone, is because God's nearness to you is not ultimately about whether you feel him to be near or feel him to be distant. His nearness to you is ultimately on the basis of his nearness to Jesus. You know, the... By the time the New Testament comes around, there was an interesting way that people had come in Israel to read the Psalms. They weren't just songs of comfort. They weren't just songs of prayer. They had become prophecies. Right in the New Testament, David is referred to, not just as a king, not just as a poet, but as a prophet. That all of these Psalms that were on David's lips, the people of Israel came to hope that one day they would be applied not just to David, but to David's greater son that one day someone would come who would take up these songs and they would be true of them. One commentator puts it that all of the Psalms of David become a wardrobe of royal robes. And every other king that comes along, David was the high point of Israel's kings. He was flawed, but he was a good king. Everyone after him failed to measure up. This commentator says that these royal robes hung too loosely on these other kings. And so the people of Israel looked for the day when a king would come and the robes would fit and he would be a good king, a king that even surpassed his father David. So David knew, David the great shepherd king of Israel knew that he needed a shepherd who would care for him, who would guide him and his people through the valley of the shadow of death. The people of Israel came to identify that with their, their own long exile and suffering. That one day when the Messiah came, God would again be their shepherd, that he would lead them through the valley and that he would bring them to the temple, that he would bring them to a place where there would be a rich table before them in the presence of their enemies, where his head would be anointed with oil as their king, where their cup of blessing would overflow, where surely goodness and mercy would follow all the days of their lives. This could be read really as the story of Jesus in a nutshell. Right? Jesus went and knew 
the care of his father as a shepherd over him in perfect care. Jesus went through the valley of the shadow of death, not just through its fears, but through its substance, right? Jesus didn't just go through the fear of death. He went through death itself, went to the very depths of the grave. So how can you know that Jesus, that God himself is near to you? How can you know that his goodness and mercy will follow you? Well, it's because his goodness and mercy followed Jesus to hell and back. His goodness and mercy followed Jesus into the tomb. His goodness and mercy spoke life to Jesus' lifeless body and brought it back to life. And if you're in Christ, his story becomes your story. His near, God's nearness to Jesus, his faithfulness to Jesus, his power in Jesus' life becomes your story. How do you know that you'll never walk alone and it not just be wishful thinking? Because Jesus rose from the dead.